This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I have been on the road for the last week. I left from New York City, traveled to Boise, Idaho through Salt Lake, continued on to Los Angeles, and now I am at the AIGAY conference in San Diego. Everywhere I traveled, I took in as much of the local landscape as I could, the gorgeous snow-capped mountains of Idaho and the low gray sky of Utah. Somehow I hoped that I would get a glimpse of Robert Smithson's spiral jetty from the airplane, and though I couldn't, I drew a mental picture of it as we traversed the Great Salt Lake from the sky. I couldn't help admire the kitsch signage that is part of the Los Angeles landscape, the three-dimensional giant signs for donut shops in the shape of actual donuts, the handmade signs for rug companies and foam companies and nail shops and sandwich shops. These were, of course, just juxtaposed with the media properties and the phone companies and the car companies and the banks. All have their own unique personalities. But no matter what state or city I was in, no matter what neighborhood or town I visited, I observed, no matter where we are in the world, there are actually two worlds, two worlds that coexist. There is the world of the haves and the world of the have-nots, the world of the givers and the world of the takers, the world of the needy and the world of the needless. What struck me most was the notion that the have-nots, the givers, and the needy fundamentally maintain the world of the haves, the takers, and the needless. These two worlds exist simultaneously and in the same place, yet they are separate. The people that make up these two worlds have much interaction, yet they don't quite overlap, and they try to get away with as little acknowledgement of the other as possible. I am lucky. I am one of the needless. I go from place to place, hotel to hotel, restaurant to restaurant, and everything is in place for me, a clean bed, a good meal, and a fine time. Those that are living in the other world make these things happen for me. They make it happen for all of us that are lucky enough to be needless. What I couldn't help but notice as I traveled from city to city was the one thing both worlds have in common, the wall in place, the barrier in place, keeping the needy needing and the needless in control. There is an unspoken invisibility between these two worlds with little or no eye contact, meaningless or irrelevant verbal discourse, and virtually no acknowledgement of the magnitude of the codependency of these two worlds. Why is it that the needless have such little regard for the needy? Why is it that the person changing our sheets or cleaning our toilet bowl in a hotel room is someone that we will rarely look in the eye? Are we afraid to acknowledge our codependency? Are we embarrassed by what we ask people to do in the name of service? I think we are. But I also think that those that service the needless are far less needy than we think they are. I believe that there is a strength of character in their ability to interact with what is usually an intolerant, superficial, 
and careless contingent of society. I think it takes great patience to take care of a group of people that have that little time for them, and chances are even less respect. Our culture perpetuates the hierarchies of these two worlds. Both depend on each other, and while the needy are forced to be polite and gracious by the very nature of their service, the needless tend to be rather rude and are often nasty in the exchange of services. What I think we fail to recognize is that these hierarchies are man-made. In the grand scheme of our journey here, we are all born and we will all die the same way. Whether we are wearing nicer clothes or sleeping on nicer sheets is irrelevant. We all deserve the same kindnesses. Whether we have the funds to pay for them or not is irrelevant. Wednesday night, I went to a very posh restaurant in Los Angeles. It was not only quite fancy, it was also rather trendy, clearly an it spot of the moment. Limousines lined the sidewalk in front of the venue, and beautiful people milled about waiting for tables and to be seen by the other beautiful people posing and lolling about. After we finished our meal, my colleagues and I waited outside the restaurant for a taxi to take us back to our hotel. It was late in the evening, and as we stood there, I took in all the action around us. I looked across the street and couldn't help but notice a man standing in an extremely large, brightly lit window on the second floor of the luxurious apartment building. He was peering down at the crowd below, and I wondered what he was thinking as he took in the landscape before him. Then he bent down. As he stood back up, I saw that he was a professional window washer, and he was cleaning the windows. And there it was, evident for everyone to see, the two worlds. And as he cleaned the barrier between us, I couldn't help but hope that after he was finished, maybe, just maybe, we could all see the one world that unites us a bit more clearly. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. My guest today is the designer, Art Chantry. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a little bit more about him. Over 30, for over 30 years, Art Chantry worked and lived in Seattle, where his ideas and personal styles branded the look of popular culture, not only in the Northwest and its bohemian underground, but also in the pop and alternative culture of the last few decades. He has been published in an extraordinary number of books and magazines, including Some People Can't Surf, an incredible monograph by Julie Lasky. His work has been exhibited in dozens of museums and galleries around the world, and he has received hundreds of design awards and honors, including a Bronze Leon at the Cannes Festival. He has taught for over 18 years at various small design schools, directly creating a very small but very powerful, probably not so small, army of inspired designers bent on world domination. Welcome, Art. Hello, hello. How are you? Is that really pronounced Bronze Leon? <laughs> I've never heard it pronounced that way before. <laughs> That's good. Are you from France? Bronze Lion. <laughs> Are you from France? I, I eat Lyons. Yeah. Okay, hi. How are you? I'm, I'm good. How are you? Area. So I understand you're in the process of moving from St. Louis back to the West Coast. Where yeah. are you moving to? Yeah, I'm, I'm moving back to Tacoma, Washington, where I spent my formative years, my teenage years. I, I know. I kind of blame Tacoma for the way I am today. So. Oh, I'm going to ask you about those teenage years a little bit later. Why Why are you moving back? Well, it, it's a combination of reasons, you know, and not the least of which is my relationship is breaking up. Without that to anchor me here, which is the reason, you know, one of the big reasons I moved out here in the first place, is that there's really nothing here to hold me anymore. As much as I love St. Louis and its strangeness, it's 
St. Louis couldn't be more different than Seattle. Seattle mm. is, I mean, St. Louis is like the bizarro world of Seattle. Everything that Seattle is, St. Louis isn't, you know. And, For example. Oh, geez, just the yuppie culture. I mean, uh-huh. it's like there's no cool people here. It's like in Seattle, everybody walks around with this smug air of having chosen the proper city to live in, you know, and it's the kind of attitude that just began to just drive me crazy after a while. Um, St. Louis is still shrinking in population. There are parts of the city that look like a neutron bomb hit it, you know. Um, it's People who live here are also humble and nice and Midwest, and they, they know there's nothing to be proud of. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why they're humble. I think there's some connection. It's like they always they find out I was from I lived in Seattle, and they go, "Why did you move here?" Like it was the most incredibly stupid thing they've ever heard of in their lives. Well, why did you move there in the first place? Well, like I said, that uh, I, I had really burned out on Seattle culture as it had developed. Um, I, I couldn't stand the yuppie culture, the micro yuppie culture anymore. It just completely destroyed me. Plus, Seattle had gotten so expensive to live there that neither I nor my friends could afford to buy houses anymore, and rent was impossible. And you couldn't rent a studio and live in it. You had and live and work in it. According to the fire regulations in Seattle, you have to rent a studio and work and live in separate places. So your rent was kind of jacked up even higher artificially through that regulation. So, um, so I mean, it was very expensive just to maintain that. And, you know, the competition in Seattle doing what I do became ferocious, and it's a small market. Let's be honest, Seattle, mm-hmm. for all of the money and business there, it's, it's still a very small market controlled by a very small group of people. And what's left over uh, is basically fought for viciously by all the little graphic designers. And there's a lot of graphic designers. Every other, all those guys living under the bridges in Seattle, those are graphic designers that moved there in the last 10 years. Yeah, they moved there because of you. Well, they moved there because, you know, Seattle's hip. There was a brief time where Seattle was considered the center of the universe. It well, I think that you went a long months. way in creating that yeah, perception. You know, or... that's for other people to judge. That's, you know, that wasn't intent. That was just doing what I did. I mean, the way I approached, when I first got to Seattle, there was nobody doing anything remotely like my work, you know, and that's what I wanted to do. So, believe it or not, I actually had to create the market for me to exist in. I mean, it's classic uh, branding or marketing Techniques. I, I basically had to train my competition so that there was the kind of work that was feeding that competition that allowed me to actually have work because my work would then be acceptable. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. I mean, and that's what I kind of had to do. I had to, like, create the market for me to exist in. And when that happened, you know, obviously larger things happen. Uh, you know, it affects the culture surrounding you. And so I got to sit back and watch that. It was Kind of like being at the hub of a wheel for a while. It was spinning around you, and it started to. It, it kind of went kind of crazy. Those those few years where Seattle was the center of the known universe were. You know, it was a really fascinating thing to watch. It would be like being in the hate during the uh, right. about sixty five or so. It'd be like being in the Manchester scene, or maybe in Swing in London back in during uh, the you know the mod era, something like that. And watching that whole cultural explosion process happen from a place that was close to the center of the wheel was utterly fascinating and horrifying at the same time. You began to see the different stages of this process happen, the stages of exploitation. At the end stage, virtually every one of these culture explosions, if you go back and actually study these things, I'm really fascinated by subcultures. Mm -hmm. Um, 
there's always a point where heroin moves in. It's usually at the initial stages of the exploitation. Um, and it's usually when the heroin moves in, people start dropping like flies. Uh, you, your little monologue earlier, one of the things I really noticed in Seattle that happened that I found really stark and surprising yet not surprising was that the original punk scene in Seattle consisted of maybe a hundred people. You know, that's the old story. It was basically a bunch of kids who played music for each other and just hung out. That group of people kind of was a mix of two different kinds, general kinds. There was that middle class or higher group that were like, you know, some of them are college kids. They come from upper middle class families. They were downtown having a bohemian existence and slumming, essentially, mm -hmm. just getting involved. Then there was this other group that was the lower class kids who looked at rock and roll culture as a salvation from their miserable lives. And when money entered the picture and the exploitation machine came in and started picking it clean and all the, you know, the heroin dealers and all that stuff that started to just turn Seattle into like this bizarre phenomena, um, after the dust settled, the kids who came from middle or higher um, they did okay. They had grown up with a certain amount of money. They understood, you know, what you're supposed to do with money. Most of them bought a house, you know, things like that. They survived. They went on to lives afterwards. The kids who came from lower class backgrounds who looked at rock and roll as salvation, when they got money, they had no idea what to do with it, and they died. <laughs> mm, all right. Well, we're going to... The phenomena was like... Uh, astonishing, you know. No, like, I want to come oh back. We just to, like pause for yeah. a very small amount of time and come back and talk about how these people died and <laughs> why heroin is important and how you became well, such an important cultural influence well, and heroin, what you're doing now. Heroin so. is important. I like the sound of that. <laughs> like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the marvelous Art Chantry. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, I'm Daryl and Reese of Campbell Soup Company, and I'm excited to invite you to the Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event this April in New York City. Join me in discussing the power of research and design as they come together in a strategic huddle to drive the Campbell's Chunky brand into the end zone. Plus, hear from design gurus Rem Kulhas and Philip Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, who will discuss how synergistic strategy and design drive brand innovation, consumer loyalty, and profitability. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD, or email register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Rise to the challenge. See you in New York City on April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria. 
Tune into Small Business Trends Radio with Anita Campbell every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Anita and expert guests provide a big-picture view of the small business market, identifying the trends and major events driving the robust growth of the small business market. Whether you are a small business owner or a company of any size desiring to sell small businesses or reach the small business market with a product or service, Small Business Trends Radio is your resource for trends that influence the global small business market. Right here on the bottom line for business talk, Voice America Business. Achieve total wealth management. Listen to three-dimensional wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three-dimensional wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to three-dimensional wealth with Roy Diefendorf Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 12.15 Pacific Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the AIGA-Y Conference in lovely San Diego. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the designer, Art Chantry. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Art, the phone lines are now open, so please call 1-866-233-7861. And Art, before the break, we were talking about... Talking about you, Art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my favorite subject. Um, so I want to ask you about the origins of what has been considered the Seattle music scene. And I know that you're widely known for creating that look and the culture that surrounded it. And it is now commonly referred to as grunge. But I've read that you said that grunge wasn't a style, that ultimately it was a marketing term. Do you still feel that way? Oh, absolutely. The word grunge was basically coined by a fellow named Bruce Pavitt, who was one of the founders of Sub Pop Records, trying to come up with a word that would be cool-sounding and exploitable. I mean, Really? Exploitable? Oh, yeah, was was it, that it, the it, initial intent? Let's make it absolutely. exploitable? Absolutely. The word was, it, it, the whole idea was exploitation. I mean, the Seattle scene was a, was a gag. It was a running joke. There was no scene. And they created the scene through media and it became real. That's one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen. <laughs> it was just astonishing. So, but it became real primarily because people connected to what was happening there at the time. I don't think that it would have had as much sticking power if what was coming out wasn't meaningful in some way. Well, punk rock. It was punk rock. There was nothing unique about what was happening in Seattle. Like the same thing was happening all over the country, but somebody packaged it properly. So do you think that ultimately Nirvana and Pearl Jam and the bands that followed them were just packaged? Well, I mean, when you're dealing with culture, packaging doesn't mean controlling. I mean, once the package gets out, it starts operating on its own, it becomes culture. I mean, it's like when you're manipulating culture, it's not like you're in control of it. What you do is you're basically, I, I like to think of it as like throwing a pebble into a pond and watching the rings, you know, and it's almost like the butterfly effect. By the time those rings get to the beach, it's a, it's a tidal wave. Excuse me, a tsunami. <laughs> and uh, So, I mean, I don't, the idea that it was packaged, 
was the initial intent, but then it became a Frankenstein monster and took off on its own, you know, wreaking havoc everywhere. Before you know it, there was runway models wearing grunge gear. You know, the, the whole idea of grunge was that it was it was a bunch of people playing music for themselves in a small scene that had no listeners. One guy, well, a couple of guys came along and began to figure out a way, and you know, they're they're savvy to, to kind of try to turn it into something, make some money off this thing. You know, and it worked. You know, and they were very lucky in that they had a terrific talent pool that had never been exploited because Seattle had always been overlooked when it came to the, you know, rock and roll exploitation machine. Very few famous things came out of there. You had to leave Seattle to actually make a living doing that stuff, generally speaking. There are always exceptions, of course. But So the idea that Seattle become a mecca for this, well, there's a lot of people who have been playing their entire lives. They're very seasoned performers and professionals, and there was great talent that had no place else to go. I mean, think of Seattle. and you know, okay, Take the United States and cut it into four quarters, mm-hmm. and you take that whole upper northwest quarter, and Seattle is the big city for that entire quarter of the United States. And people from all around the area poured into Seattle because it was the local big city. There was all these contingents and factions in there that were all these, like, tribes within Seattle, still is. Mm-hmm. And these these people all produced talents, and people were talented going there and things like that. And it, it became the... I can think of it as, like, a, a boil that begins to fester. <laughs> I don't know. I also have this theory about the United States that people tend to run away from the middle of it, and they keep trying to escape, and eventually they're going to run up against the coast somewhere, and then they're going to start going north or south, and they end up piling up in the corners of the United yeah, States. Yeah, I did. I read that you had a theory about the continental U.S. This is yeah, the it, quote, that the it, corners it, it, are where people go who don't fit in to find a new yeah, life. And then you have Alaska, because that's where the really serious deranged professionals go, you know, the people <laughs> that are, like, way off the deep end. Those, those people are all can be downright scary, you know. But the corners, you end up with these weirdos piling up. Just think Key West, Southern California, New England, Seattle. You know, it, it makes sense. It's, you can't go no further and still be in the U.S. So, you know, my role, and I really got to correct this, is like I didn't invent that look. It was actually, I was a serious participant in it and a great promoter of it and an exploiter of it myself. But the look was something that emerged out of a whole group of talents in Seattle that, again, had no place else to go. And what eventually happened, there was, there was this magazine called The Rocket in Seattle. It was a free rock and roll tabloid giveaway thing that was always piled up in hip boutiques and chic restaurants, or at least hipster restaurants. And it was kind of focused on, you know, the alternative culture. It began in 1979, and it spawned an enormous amount of talent. Again, these people couldn't get arrested, and they wanted to express themselves and this was the only vehicle they had to do so. It was the only kiosk. And well, Sub Pop Records began as a, as a record review column in, in the Rocket. For right. Instance. Nirvana met each other. They they found their drummer or something in the in the. They advertised, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's just the way it worked. And so, you know, there was a huge number of people. Mark Michelson, Bob Newman, Helene Silverman, uh, the, the designers, uh, Norman Hathaway, D. Tom Bissett, uh, uh, Jeff Kleinsmith, Hank Trotter, Jesse Reyes, uh, you know, uh, Lisa Orth, these are all people that, you know, Kate Thompson, uh, these incredible talented designers who went on to spectacular careers after they left Seattle. I mean, 
that list I'm talking about there were the people who created the looks of, like, Metropolis Magazine. No, I know. I know Helene very well. I think yeah, she's okay, an extraordinary Helene, talent. Yeah, Helene it was, you know, she, she was the art director at The Rocket before me. You know, she was the one who recruited me, you know. The, the people, art directors at Newsweek and Time and Vanity Fair and, and Village Voice and, you know, Rock and Roll Magazine. She's an ex-Rocket person right now is one of the senior designers at Rolling Stone Magazine. I mean, it's these, these people just pop up everywhere, and it's simply because it was the only show in town. It was the only place to go. And we're also talking cartoonists, Mike, Matt Groening, uh, Linda yeah. Perry, you know, just incredible talents, writers, uh, you know, just musicians, you know. It's just a record label started out of there that became very successful. It's, it was an extraordinary thing. Great photographers. All of them worked for nothing just to have something interesting to do. That's the people that created the look. I was, my style was influential. I was maybe one of the people who actually gave it substance, maybe concreted it, you know, took all the, 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 the what was swirling around me, brought it into myself, and brought it back out as maybe something a little bit more fixed as a style. Well, Art, um, we have so a number means... of callers on the, on the line for you already. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. Um, first, we have Gregory from New York. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Art. Hello. Debbie, I loved your opening. It was really beautiful today. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Art, yeah, as you're going to make this move, and it's with all move, it's change, um, wh- what do you hope um, will in the move? What do you hope for in the move, and how do you think it will inspire you in your design? Well, <laughs> that's a good question, because actually when I go back to the Northwest, I'm going to go back to school to learn graphics design. Where are you going to school, Art? I'm going to school at a place I taught for 18 years called the School of Visual Concepts in Seattle. I'm going back and signing up as a student. Take, and they're taking you back. I'm taking computer <laughs> class. <laughs> oh, God, I'm help us I'm finally going to learn how to, because, you know, the problem for me is, that, I mean, I, I've stuck to my guns and done it the old way for decades longer than anybody else, you know, it seems, anyway. And it's finally gotten to the point where the printing paradigm has shifted so dramatically that they can't print my work anymore. It oh can't God. be processed. I have to run it through a digital interface. I have, in order to continue doing graphic design, in order to get my work printed, I have to supply them with either the artwork separated on disk or film. It used to be in the old days, graphic designers were conductors of an orchestra of talents, typesetters, mm-hmm. writers, photographers, illustrators, lettering artists, you know, and you know, darkroom strippers, printers, and we, we kind of orchestrated all these things. And now, with the advent of the computer, all these services, all these incredible quality control systems have been dumped onto the lap of the designer at no extra cost, I might add. Yes, and that's true. Nobody, top, yeah, we're not charging for that typography that we used to charge for, yeah, but we're still yes, doing on it. On top of that, you know, we actually got markups when we hired somebody and billed the client, and they also got a career out of the typographers, got typesetters got careers out of it. And then on top of that, um, we have to support $20,000 worth of equipment and upgrades. And the, com- the market's become so competitive because so many people can suddenly do graphic design that prices have been driven down. Now, I've always kind of tried to take the position of being an idea person uh, because computers don't have idea buttons is my big joke. Well, 
I'm quickly finding out at this point in my life that ideas aren't really necessary for about 90% of graphic design and never has been. Why not? Why don't you think that they are? Well, I mean, look around you. I mean, when you start talking about design culture, all we see is what's in the design angles. I'm talking about going to a grocery store, you know, going to a a drugstore, walk down the street, and 90% of graphic design out there, probably higher, really doesn't, there's an initial idea and the rest of it's just road application. That is one thing that technicians can do better than graphic designers. Now, what do you think is road application about it? Well, okay. You know what I do for a living, don't you? Somebody (laughs) can make the idea of the freeway sign, right? We don't know who designed that. Does he sit down and and apply it to every freeway sign in the country? No, but everybody follows the standards that he designed. That's what I'm talking about. You know, you're starting to run into a thing called concepting, and other designers will hire designers and ad agencies and in-house departments. They will hire an interesting, thinking, creative designer to do something called concepting. That's a whole new category of work that you run into. I've been running into about 15 years. Usually they'll pay you $20 an hour to come in and give them their, give you, they'll give them your ideas on the thing, and then they'll develop them up and sell them to the client. And they'll be $20 an hour, and they always put a fixed number of hours, like, oh, and it's only, we only can afford to pay like 10 hours, you know. So what they're doing is saying 200 bucks and give us the concepts and we'll make the, and we'll sell it to the client for all the money and you don't get any of that. And that has become a regular category of graphic design participation. So they're basically those that are actually implementing the graphic design essentially become facilitators as opposed to creators. In-house has taken over is what I'm saying. You know, the freelance, the the era of the freelance graphic designer design uh, design firm and marketing firm is dwindling quickly. and I really think, and I've said this for years, and I think it still think it's true that, you know, literally anybody can go out, buy a computer and a couple of programs, take a few weeks to learn them, and immediately become a C-level designer. Oh, I think that most people think that if they do that, that gives them a diploma in graphic design. Absolutely, and the scary part is, for all intents and purposes, they're right. The craft has been removed, and now the craft is something that you bring in as concepting that you kind of sprinkle on top and and give some water and then run it through your systems and flowers. And I mean, it's like, and you know what I'm also running into is more and more people are outsourcing graphic design to places like China and India yeah. because there's so many things that we just don't need a high design culture designer to do that they can do just fine. And so it, it, the entire idea of what graphic design is and how it's practiced is so different than the way I first learned 30 years ago. I mean, it's a different world. I can't participate. I am no longer a graphic designer unless I learn a computer. And that's what's happened to me. Well, I want to talk way more about this and what, if anything, we can do about it after our break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Art Chantry. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. Please don't go away. Dynamic and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hello, I'm Sharon Ryder Lindbergh from Unilever North America. I'll be speaking at Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event in April at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. I'll be discussing the development and the rollout of the new Hellman's Global Brand Identity. Fuse is the destination for brand design leaders. Will you be there? Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD or call 
to find out more about this great event. Consider this an investment in your brand's future. Clear your calendar and prepare to walk away with inspiration, insight, and creative new ideas to implement when you return to the office. Stay at the top of your game. Visit www.iirusa.com backslash BIPD today. Mention Design Men. You'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Look forward to seeing you in New York in, in April. Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson talks about the nuts and bolts of starting, running, and expanding a business. From time management, leadership, sales, marketing, and customer service to office management, using technology, business plans, accounting, taxes, and networking. Danielle and her expert guests share their years of experience on a variety of topics. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson. Useful tips, authoritative advice, creative solutions. Right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. You work hard, and you need to take time to relax and rejuvenate yourself. Travel is one of the most effective and gratifying ways to achieve this. Tune in to Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Judy Jackson, will teach you how you can enhance your lifestyle through travel. Travel Connections will also bring you the latest news on what's hot and exciting in vacation and travel trends. So tune in to Travel Connections with Judy every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time right here on Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Hi, from the AITA White Conference in San Diego. You are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the Internet focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guest today is the brilliant Art Chantry. If you'd like to join our conversation or if you have a question for Art, you can call us. The phone lines are open. We do have a couple of callers on the line. First, we have Val from San Diego. Val, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, how are you? How's it going, Art? Hey, Val, how are you? I like that. Val from San Diego. That's <laughs> yeah, actually it's Tucson, Arizona, but that's okay. I'm having fun out here in San Diego. How about you? Well, I'm not in San Diego. I imagine it's more fun in San Diego than it is in St. <laughs> at the moment. So. Although right. it's sunny outside. But anyway, go on with your question. You're killing time here. So. Well, no, I, I just wanted to know what, what you thought of uh, working with Courtney Love. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... <laughs> Every project you work on, I mean, I've, I've, if you look at my portfolio, I've worked with the most amazing, I've worked with circus freaks and necrophiliacs and corporate CEOs and pimps. And, Interested in the necrophiliacs. Well, you'd be surprised what came through Seattle. I, when at the height of the freak scene up there, it's like I was hobnobbing with people that scared the poop out of me. But uh, anyway, Courtney, I only met on one occasion, and I I wasn't introduced. I you know I did a record cover for Hole very very early on, and kind of dealt through a proxy. So every project you work on, sometimes you never meet them. Sometimes you do. Uh, sometimes they become friends. Sometimes re- the the best projects are the ones where you really intimately get involved with their creative process, and and understand it to the point where you can actually improve upon it and reflect it, you know, like a graphic designer can. I mean, after all, it's a language form, you know, and when we have a client come in with their little with their dialect, you have to learn that dialect in order to properly present the, what's being said. 
Courtney Love, man, she was scary. She was one of the most frightening people I've ever met. Yeah, I swear. It's just... Uh, she she just had a presence about her that was like Godzilla with a skirt. Really? In what way? Well, I mean, if I go any further, I'm probably open for libel, and she has Larry Flint's lawyers on her side or something like that. So I'm not going to go too much further with that. But she was a she was a, a truly uh, impressive human being. Uh, everybody around her just was scared of her. <laughs> the only way you can describe it. Everybody shook in fear in her presence because you just never knew what was going to happen. Man, it was like a bomb ticking. Was it hard to get any of her, uh, any of that stuff printed? Did you have problems with the printers? Oh, that's a good question. You know the inside story already. Yeah, with the, the, the 45 cover that I designed was for uh, a, a song called Dick, Dick Nail. And Courtney had a photograph of herself buck naked in a bathtub at the age of 12 years old. <laughs> Essentially, you know, to most untrained observers or outsiders, it's kitty porn. Okay, and it's a photograph her father took of her. So, I mean, it's like layers and layers of you know, disturbing, you know, vibes coming off of this thing. And she insisted on having that to be the cover, you know. So um, I designed the cover, and I dealt with it as best I could. And, you know, I thought it was an intriguing idea because Courtney takes the iconography of the enemy. She usurps the iconography of the enemy and uses it as a weapon against the, uh, the, the enemy. And that's always been her stance, and it's a fascinating cultural stance to take. I mean, Did she I, tell you that, or have you no, no, this surmised is, this that? No, no, this is what I've surmised. Okay. You know? um, and she would take the, the instruments of pornography. I mean, her whole baby doll and look is, is basically taking a certain facet of pornography imagery and using it as a power base and using it against the oppressor. It, it's a classic technique that the propagandists use, and cultural people use it, too. Anyway, so I had this design that had this naked full frontal nudity of a 12-year-old Courtney in a bathtub. And it's like it took us three printers before somebody would even touch it. Really? Yeah, and finally we found one that was so desperate for money that they were going to, you know, they took it because they just needed the money. Yeah, they didn't want to do it because they felt in some way that it was morally reprehensible? Yeah, yeah, and I've run into a lot of that stuff because a lot of my clients are right on the edge of, of sanity, a lot of them. And we've had... We've had lots of problems over the years printing some of the pieces I've done. Nowadays, you look at them and they so what, you know, because it, so many people have done the same thing since. But when you're out there trying to, like, you know, talk in this language form, and this language form is kind of new and, and disturbing and not normal, whatever that's defined at the moment, um, you start running into other people resisting. And a lot of those people are people who are printers and uh and always had typesetter problems because they wouldn't type it. They wouldn't, uh, you know, photographers wouldn't shoot it. Police departments who don't like this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, all kinds of silly, silly things in retrospect that at the time were major, major obstacles to overcome. Well, Val, thank you for calling. Thank you, and good, yeah. good talking to you, Art. Yeah, Take thanks, care. Val. Val hosted me down in uh, Tucson last week. Was it last week? And he he's involved with the AIGA group down in Tucson, and uh, and he was. Brought me down for a lecture and had a great time. He took me to Tucson. Thank no, not, you. Not Tucson, <laughs> Thank you, Val. Tombstone. He took me to Tombstone. I saw the OK Corral, dude. <laughs> um, Art, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by by the idea of you going back to school because you can't submit your that. artwork to printers in a way that they could print it. And yet I can't think of another designer that has been as copied as you are. I know that Dave Kreider, the founder of Estrus Records, said that your work, and I love this quote, it has a deceptive simplicity that leads people not only to skim past its subtleties, but also to rip it off poorly. 
And did, where, was that in my book or something? Where did you find that quote? That was in Julie Lasky's book, yeah. Oh, I don't remember that quote. That is yeah. good. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Deceptive simplicity that leads people not only to skim past its subtleties, but also to rip it off poorly. So all these people are ripping off your work now, ripping off your style, and they're able to recreate it with wow. the computer. This is graphic design. Good God, sort of, it's all sort of off. Come inelegant on. irony to the fact that you have to go back to school to figure out how to do this now. Well, it, it's more like a technological learning curve, you know, and the, the world is, is spun on its axis. The whole idea of me being ripped off, yeah, I've influenced a lot of people. Yeah, I've trained a lot of people to do what I do. Yeah, if you're doing your job right, people learn what you're saying. Hemingway wrote a lot of books, and a lot of people tried to write like Hemingway. But what happens is that when you try to write like Hemingway, you can't because you're not Hemingway, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So what happens is little bits of Hemingway kind of, picks up and breaks off and floats into your ideas and your style and your way of talking and your language form. And that's the way culture works. I mean, graphic design is this, is this language form that everybody in America, everybody in the entire world can understand. And they all speak it fluently, but they have no idea it even exists. And graphic designers are the people that manipulate that language form. And we are the masters of that language form. We, and it's our, it's our business to play with it to change the way people think about things, a.k.a. buy this product, uh, go to this show, vote for this candidate, attend this event, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. Basically, we use all the powers of this language form, you know, we color and shape and texture and, and uh, iconography and, and even the written word to change the way, to, to influence the way people think about something. And we do it blindly. We don't even think about it. We just do it for whoever pays us the most money to do it. Absolutely. You know? And we never think about what we're actually doing here and how, the kind of damage or, or improvements we can actually do. You know? It's like we're propagandists for a technological merchant society. You know? And it's our job to fuck with people's heads. That's plain and simple. That's what we do. We're mind fuckers. Well, I think one of the things that you've said that I find really interesting um, is that it's individuals striving against really oppressive odds who make graphics interesting. Well, again, that's because of my fascination with subculture. And who do you think is doing really good work? Who's, whose work do you admire? Well, you know, that's so hard because I really don't pay attention to contemporary graphic design anymore. I've kind of burned out on it. There's a number of crazy poster people that are fairly obscure, but you can encounter them on a, on a website called gigposters.com that... Mm-hmm. As there's some incredibly talented people on that side, and there's also a lot of people who aren't very incredibly talented, you know. But they, it's an enormous, you know, a, a, a collection of, of tens of thousands of posters from all over the world, and there's some stylists and some thinkers on there that are just extraordinary. So you know, geekposters.com for Yeah, I mean, but again, you're going to have to shop it. Go there, you will find extraordinary stuff. It, and you have to really look because there's a lot of stuff that will just kind of like make you go, ah, you know. Yeah. So, but as far as you know, just just plain graphic designers, there's an awful lot of people I admire that are contemporaries of mine. There's an awful lot of people from the past, that, of course, that I just deeply admire. However, if if you were to just ask me who is like really young and hip and cool right now, I don't. I wouldn't know. I don't pay attention. I don't even subscribe to design magazines anymore. I don't even buy new books. I only buy old books. So what inspires you? The world, everything around me, the culture I live in, television, stuff blowing down the street, uh, dented rusty cars, uh, you know, old magazines, you know, sitting in the doctor's office. That's what inspires me. Mm-hmm. What was the last thing that you saw that broke your heart? Oh, that's... 
have a heart? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm, I've been called heartless so many times. Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm going through some emotional stuff right now, so I don't want to touch that. Okay, okay that's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Well, you know what? It's time for us to take a little break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the very lovely Art Chantry. We'll be right back with our broadcast in a few moments. Please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. The challenge of change comes as ramped up due to the advent of information age and the interconnectedness of a global community. In a high-tech world, the ability to embrace change, adapt, and respond accordingly is key to personal and professional success. Talking Change with Ann Powers, airing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, explores the hows, whys, and what to do when faced with change. Embrace the new reality, adopt transition into your personal power portfolio, and tune into Talking Change with Ann Powers every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time right here on the bottom line of business talk voice america business learn to thrive not just survive in business and careers unleash your full potential and greatness with the thrive factor unleashing your potential with tactical coaches and success masters hosts dory willer and eva gregory dory eva and their masters of thriving expert guests inform educate elucidate and inspire with leading edge information the thrive factor unleashing your potential with dory willer and eva gregory broadcast each thursday at 9 a.m pacific noon eastern on the voice america business channel the thrive factor success and inspiration at the click of a mouse the bottom line in business talk voice america business we're back with design matters with debbie millman if you have a question for debbie feel free to call us at 866-472-5790 once again here's the host of design matters debbie millman Welcome back. It is 12.44 Pacific Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the AIGAY Conference in San Diego. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the designer, Art Chantry. We have a caller on the line, so I'm not going to invite too many other people to call, because I'm afraid we might not be able to get to them all. But Lisa from Vermont, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Art. Hi. How are you? Vermont, huh? (laughs) It's a nice... Green place. Lots of, lots of granite up there. I, I've had friends who've gone up there to study the monument industry, and that's where you have to learn it. I bet. I bet. Well, we yeah. do like our, our Ben and Jerry's and seventh generation uh, recycled toilet paper. <laughs> oh, we have a hippie on the line, Art. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm a hippie. I'm a stylish hippie. Um, well, I was just curious, um, you know, what, what took you so long to want to, um, you know, take your art form to, um, to the computer? Desperation, you know, it's like that's not what I enjoy doing. I like using my hands, and I'm very fast with my hands, and it's the way I think. Um, the creative, pro- I've learned over the years to kind of harness the creative process. You know how people have to spend so much time trying to come up with ideas? I don't have to do that. I just basically, uh, it just comes out of me at this point. And, and it's, 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 a, it's a system I've learned to do creativity with that involves using my hands to do my thinking for me. It's, it's kind of like driving a car. Mm. When you're driving a car, do you really stop and think about everything you do? 
you know, move the wheel this far, turn the wheel, go this way, signal this, look left and right. No, you're thinking about what you can eat for dinner or what you listen to the radio or singing a song or maybe putting on your makeup or something. You're doing anything but thinking about driving, yet you're driving incredibly well. No. Mm-hmm. And we're all breathing. We don't think about that either. Yeah, and so, I mean, all that kind of, that is, you're basically letting a different part of your mind run the car. And we don't think of that as magic, yet we think of creativity as magic, and it happens exactly the same way. The creative part of the brain is basically an unconscious part of the brain. It's not the forefront, the conscious part of your brain. It's back there moshing around. And the trick to being creative is learning how to kick that stuff through you and bypassing the conscious brain and getting it to just come out. Granted, How do you do that, Art? Well, there's so many. I, over the years, I've learned distraction. I, I like to listen to music while I work, and I collect old junk vinyl records that I buy in thrift stores for a dime, you know, and I buy them because they're interesting for some reason. I bring them home, and I have this huge pile of records, and I find that one side of an LP is just about the amount of time for concentration I need before I need to break it and start thinking about, you know, listening to the radio while I'm driving kind of thing. Right. And so uh, I, my trick is that I, I, I grab the records at random, and some of them I have no idea what they are, and I have to, the game is I have to play one whole side of the record, no matter what it is. So I end up listening to things like sound effects records or opera or bad country or good country. You know, all, And when you're listening to music, you're thinking about what's going into the composition of it and how it's made, at least I do. And I'm trying to figure out what these people are saying and what, what kind of, you know, it's just basically I'm absorbed with what's going on with the sounds. And I'm not thinking about what I'm doing with my hands. And it allows my mind to just basically operate through my hands. And at this point in my life, I can do it without music. I can just do it. I, n- I never have to sit down and thumbnail and do plans. I just, it, stuff just comes out of me now. And it's taken me 30 years to get to this point. Now, a computer creates an interface. All of a sudden... I can't drive the car, I've got to sit down and very consciously manipulate how I drive the car, and the car drives itself, you know. So it's it's this whole different thing that breaks the chain between me and, and my hands and ultimately the press. Because, you know, what we do is, like, we manipulate printing presses. It's, what graphic design is about is printing. And now instead of working, I've always designed directly for a printing press. I know how they work. I understand what they can do. I understand what they can't do. I understand what a good press can do as opposed to a crummy press. You know, I understand what the operators can do. I get to know them. Now, I've got this interface, this great comping tool in between me and the printing press. I know so many graphic designers out there today have never seen a printing press. That just boggles my mind. I think you haven't really lived until you've smelled that smell. Yeah, and, you know, it's like a good printer, when you finally get a relationship with a printer, it's like, I will bend over backwards to maintain that relationship. I mean, clients are a dime a dozen compared to good printers. Good printers are like extraordinary people, and you want to keep them around. But nowadays, people don't even understand that their stuff gets printed on a printing press. They think printing is, it comes off these little boxes on their desk, and that's what they think printing is. It's like this whole world is collapsing, but it's still there. So are anyway, you still on so, your stack camera? No, I had to finally let that go. Yeah. I, you can't get the, the, the chemistry and the, the paper and stuff it's bit by bit. It's like when I do my lectures, I still use a slide show. Mm-hmm. You know how many people, you know, 
people don't have slide carousels anymore. When I fly down there, I've got the slide carousel. They don't have slide projectors. Oh, yeah, I know. Mary Lewis, I saw a fantastic presentation from Mary Lewis from Lewis Mobley, and she used slides. And she spent about an hour calibrating the light and the color yeah. and just so that the work would look as best as it possibly could. I really, I really enjoyed that. Well, it, what's, what's hilarious is, like, well, recently I was down in Albuquerque, and somebody brought in a slide projector that they pulled out of their attic. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those Vivitar ones that worked on the side thing. I've never seen one. Oh, my I mean, God. This thing was an antique, man. It was, like, kind of cool. Okay. Yeah. I love the old technology anyway. But, and so all of a sudden, we didn't have a slide projector that would take my standard carousel slides. And here is a half hour before I'm supposed to go on, essentially. And the guy's running around town trying to find somebody who has a slide projector. And every place he called, they laughed at him. What do you want with one of them things? I haven't seen one of them things in years. You know, it's like, you know, all of a sudden. Did he really have that accent? Well, you know, <laughs> that's just crap, you know. But, I mean, here all of a sudden my, my entire slideshow has become outmoded, and I've got to, like, what, put it on PowerPoint? I mean, what is that? You know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's like that whole thing with the, the computer, you know, I basically have a gun to my head. If I want to continue doing graphic design, which is what I am, um, I'm a graphic designer. I have to learn the technology because the technology doesn't fit what I do anymore. Basically, I've, graphic design has left me behind, and now I guess I'm an artist or something lowly like that. You know, mm-hmm. I actually make far more money selling my old posters in art galleries as art prints than I do off of commissions for graphic design these days. What kind of projects are you currently working on? Well, right now, um, none. <laughs> none. None. No, I go through long periods where I don't have any work at all. And are you still teaching? Are you planning on teaching at the school you're going to be attending? Probably not. Probably not. See, academia and me, they don't... Academia is its own beast with its own set of rules and its own politics. And I've... Academia, whenever I've made a presence in academia, a formal academia, real four-year colleges and stuff, not private schools, um, they don't like me very much. <laughs> Why is that? Well, I'm basically I'm the loyal opposition. It's my job to get up there and say all the things they don't want to hear. I mean, that's why they drag me out there. To do you think you got me on the line right now because I'm just a nice little pan, pansy, friendly person? No, I'm, I'm saying all kinds of things <laughs> that that are controversial, and I, I'm an iconoclast. I, I am the loyal opposition. You know, in I read. Many years ago, in the Seattle Design Newsletter, that you were quoted as describing yourself as so cynical, I am just about dead. Well, that was a snide remark. That uh, I was talking to a writer who was an old friend of mine. He thought that was so funny. This is a guy who used to set, shove H.L. Mencken quotes under the door for me. Thought, <laughs> you know, it's like every day I'd come by and there'd be a new H.L. Mencken quote, and I'd get a giggle. And he knew I appreciated that. So, yeah. So, I mean, when I, we were sitting around drinking beers, and I made that crack, and he just thought that was great. Before you know it, I'm saddled with it the rest of my life. Well, do you consider yourself cynical? Do you no, consider yourself optimistic? Like, I mean, how would you describe no, no, yourself? No, I'm not optimistic. I, I'm not an optimistic person. And that, you know, there's lots of reasons for that. But the, the bottom line is optimists. See a glass is half full. I see it as half empty. You know, it's like when you're a pessimist and you go into a situation and something great happens. It's really great, but if it goes bad, you're not disappointed because it's what you expected. Mm-hmm. I think optimists spend an awful lot of time being disappointed. But it's like you know, Oscar Wilde said, you know, you scratch the uh, uh, scratch the surface off of a. Of a... Nah, he, he wasn't an optimist. It was like. A... Well, okay. Fascist? 
No, you scratch, you scratch the surface of a pessimist, you find a disappointed optimist. You know, uh, that kind of a joke. That's exactly what the, he said, but the, that's the point. Little known fact about you, I think, although maybe, you know, maybe it's a, a well-known known fact, and I just discovered it, is that you're a fan of Guy de Maupassant, the French writer. Well, of course. And yeah. I think that he's an incredibly optimistic and hopeful writer. Well, I, what, you can't, uh, I can't, I'm not yeah, allowed to Yeah, but I think that it, takes a special, <laughs> it takes a special mentality to be a Maupassant fan. I also like H.P. Lovecraft, so, I mean, obviously my taste goes all over the place. <laughs> I know you also like French symbolist poetry. You're a big that was a fan. real eye-opener for me when I was in, like, junior high school. I was Back in 68, that was an important year for me, and I mis- discovered a lot of things, and R- Rambo was one of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I read that you said that that was the year that Robert Kennedy was assassinated, and you felt that even that that proved that that was the end of the world because that was the moment everyone gave up hope. And I really gun. think that's true. I mean, everybody, certain faction gave up hope when Martin Luther King got shot, and, and of course JFK really spiked a lot of people, but there was still optimism after that. But it was like, 68 is when optimism in America died. And mm-hmm. since then, it's been, I really think that was like the peak year in our culture, and we've been on a, in a decadent phase ever since, but it's not clean like that. Um, but it really was a serious, that was the moment when everybody got pissed off. There was, if RFK hadn't have been shot, there would have been no Chicago riots. Right. You know, it's just that simple. That, that summer of 68, everybody was so angry. It, kids these days, kids, anybody younger than 30 years old, um, they don't know how, they tend to look at the 60s kind of like the way, you know, that we look at the 50s, kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. happy days, you know, poodle skirts and all that junk. The 60s wasn't, it wasn't sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It wasn't hippies. It, it was like really intense anger. And the idea that you were going to die, the future was, that's when the future became a bad place to live. I went, when I was in high school, I was draft age for the Vietnam era, and it's like, you really, it's hard to really fathom how this, there was this impending doom hanging over everybody. All the guys knew they were going to go to the front, especially in my white trash circles. Oh, Art. No, that's the way it was. I did, had no chance at getting out of uh, being drafted. Well, I have that... 20 seconds to wrap this yeah. interview up. So I'm going to ask you one last question. What gives you hope for tomorrow? I'm just going to leave a silence there. The possibilities, right? That's a good one. I'm going to interpret that as endless possibilities. And I'm, I'm going to interpret it as a dead silence. <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. You can because you're Art Chantry. That's Thank my you job. so much for being Mr. here. Royal Opposition. Special thanks to our sponsors, Adobe and Nina Paper, and I'd like to thank Brian Travis from Clone Voice America. Joining me next week are the authors Veronique Vienne and Steve Heller. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can follow our chantry. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. <laughs> Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.